Hey, it is good to be back with y'all this morning, have an opportunity to continue in our Advent study. And so if you want to begin to make your way to the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be in Luke 1, verses 57 through 80 this morning. Luke 1, uh, 57 through 80. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for that to be a gift from us to you, uh, for you to be able to take home and read that throughout the week. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you don't read it often, you're not engaged with it often, there's a table of contents at the front that's going to let you know where to find uh, Luke, and we're going to be in Luke 157 uh, through 80 this morning, continuing in our Advent study as we focus really on the idea of joy. But before we do, uh, would you join with me in prayer? God, as we come into this place this morning... uh, Delighting, uh, having some sense of expectation, desiring to be visited by you, desirous to bring you honor and glory in the way that we approach the study of your word, in the ways that we have sung your word and reflected on you in prayer. God, I pray that our hearts would match, our minds would match, our mouths, our bodies. God, that as we encounter you and we live in the realization of fear and anxiety, difficulty, depression, God, that we would find those things easy to lay down, easy to relinquish as we meet you this morning. God, our prayer and our delight is that we would experience joy and joy from your son Jesus, held fast there by the power of your Holy Spirit. We recognize that as we desire that as we request that, that the reality of our lives is that often we are not caught up in the experience of joy. So God, I want to pray for those this morning who are just struggling with the idea of joy. Can joy ever be theirs? Can they ever have freedom? Can they ever have release? God, that they would be confronted in your mercy, that they would find themselves moving in the direction of joy. God, this morning I want us to spend just a moment allowing our hearts to break for those who have suffered the loss in the stretch of over 250 miles of storms from Arkansas up through Kentucky. Loss at any time of year is difficult, but Father, we want to pray for them. We want to beseech your throne on their behalf. God, we pray for Southern Baptists and Samaritan's Purse and others who are already sending out men and women in support and aid for these communities that are devastated by these tornadoes and storms. God, I pray that you would be with the men and women who go to serve in the name of Jesus Christ, that as they go, that they would be able to live out and communicate a bold testimony of what Jesus has sent them to do in the hope that these people are able to have even in the face of loss because of Jesus. God, I'm thankful that we operate in this community as a partner with the other churches here in Greenville. And so, Father, we pray once again for their services. We pray for the word that is communicated. We pray for hearts to be changed, lives to be renewed, marriages restored, families secured, joy to be realized. God, would you bless our time and the time spent across this community as men and women open your word, rest in your son, and abide in your spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
Amen. So if, if you look at the Gospel of Luke, and I just want to kind of give a brief outline catch-up for those of you who weren't here the last couple of weeks, or maybe you've slept since then. So essentially, Luke opens up, and he has the account of John the Baptist, and what it looks like for Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, to be in the temple. He's offering a sacrifice. He's there. He's in front of the incense. He's got the lamp. He's got the showbread. And this angel confronts him and offers a word of prophecy, offers a word of encouragement, and in fact tells Zechariah what's going to happen. You and your wife are old. You've not had any kids, but your wife's going to be pregnant. You're going to have a son. His name's going to be John. And Zechariah is all verklempt because of this. He just can't talk anymore. In fact, because of his unbelief, the angel makes it so he can't talk until the son's born. So Luke transitions from there, and we have another angelic encounter that Justin preached on last week. And so the angel comes to Mary, and he says, though you've not been with child, though you're not married, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him Jesus. He's going to be son of the Most High God. Now what Luke does next is he jumps back to the story of John the Baptist, and that's where we are today. Look at verse 57. And in 57 through 66, what essentially we read is this narrative account where Luke is finishing this section of John's story. And then in 67 through 79, what we see is the response that Zechariah has as a result of what God has done through his story. So look at what he says. 57 through 66. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, listen, none of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what, they wanted, what he wanted him to be called And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote upon it, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open, his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And so we just kind of step into this scenario. So it's been some time since we've talked about John in this account here. And so we recognize that a full nine months, a full maybe ten months has transpired since Zechariah is there in the temple and the angel before him. And he, he, he engages in unbelief and the angel strikes it so that he can't speak. So for a full nine, a full ten months, he's there and people say something to him and he's and people say something to him, or, or there's this moment when, when his wife walks in and says, does this uh, make me look fat? And he says, never, never. And so for all this time, he's unable to speak. And, and the amazing thing happens that Scripture's recording here. See, there are a number of people that will come up to you and they'll say, I can tell that you're going to do really well in life and you're going to get a great job and you're going to marry a beautiful woman and you're going to have a wonderful life and you're going to make a lot of money. And then 10 years later, you're still single and you have a terrible job and you have none of these things have happened and you begin to think, was that brother wrong? Was that sister wrong? What we see in scripture is those things that God give us an indication that are going to happen do in fact happen. And I think we have this habit of kind of reading over this really quickly and not seeing the miracle that God has brought 
to reality. The angel told uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth that they would have a child even though they were past childbearing age. And what we read is this miracle in this first line, Elizabeth gave birth to a son. So all the neighbors want to see the miracle that's happened. And so all the neighbors from all the community, they rush over there and they want to lay eyes on this son because look at what it says here. They knew that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And then in line with the prophecy of the angel who's told Zechariah, people are going to come and they're going to be glad and they're going to rejoice with you. That's exactly what these neighbors did. Now listen, uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, an informal poll has been kind of created in my mind through conversations I've had. And so I had a conversation with a guy a couple of weeks ago, and he made this statement, no newborns are pretty. No newborns are pretty. But I saw the Litchfield's baby, and that is a pretty baby. (laughs) It's got me wondering, how many people think babies are ugly? How many people think babies are beautiful? And so just kind of thinking about that and applying that to this text, when people rush in and and they they walk over and they're like, Zach, and and they say, Elizabeth, and then they look at John the Baptist, the thought that we see articulated in Scripture isn't one of, woohoo, isn't he handsome? Or woohoo, isn't he a baby? They don't know what to say. But what we read in this is the response is a response to God's mercy, and they rejoice with her. Their response isn't one of sentimentality. It's not one of, oh, look at this. It's a baby at this time of year. Their response is to key in on God's mercy visited upon this family. And they are excited for her. They are rejoicing with her, which gives us an indication for what we should do in response. We're responding to the mercy of God when we see these things unfolded. So the text tells us that the eighth day came, it's time to circumcise the child, and the group of people, these neighbors essentially, have been in this extended stay and visit with them. Now the the text is communicating to us that informally the neighbors had already begun to refer to this child in their hearts and by their mouths as Zechariah. It says they they would have called him, but the Greek there is the idea that they were already calling him Zechariah, named after his father. And so they're engaged in the middle of this. They come to circumcise the child. And Elizabeth has to step into the middle of this and interrupt it. Said they would have called him Zechariah. His mother answered, no, in the future his name shall be, he shall be called John, which means God is gracious. And what graciousness God had bestowed upon them. Now, if we understand anything about the first century, we understand that Elizabeth has really just stepped into the middle of it. She stepped into the middle of this. She has inserted herself into a situation that they didn't think it was appropriate for her to be in. You see, when this crowd, when this group says and they dictate uh, that his name and they presume that his name would be Zechariah and she interrupts and she engages and she inserts herself, there are a couple of things they would have thought of. One, what is this woman doing? Doesn't she know how taboo this is? Doesn't she know in some sense how inappropriate it is for a woman to open her mouth in the presence of these men who've already declared a pretty awesome name? What is she thinking? So in that moment, Elizabeth has to make a decision. Will I be faithful to God? And will I step into the discomfort of the situation? Or will I just step back and let this thing happen? Am I just going to let it play out? 
But what we see in this is her faithfulness to the Lord to step into the discomfort of the situation and to say, his name shall be John. And the crowd's not willing to be dispelled. They're not willing to have uh, the sense of propriety uh, done away with. So what they say is, listen, lady, this doesn't make any kind of good sense. Your family doesn't even have that name running in your list. I mean, it, 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 we're not saying anything negative about the name John, but what we're telling you is that your family doesn't have a history of having this name. And so they look over to Zechariah, who at this point, we're not even told what he's doing. And the presumption on their part is that Zechariah, not just that he can't speak, but also that he can't hear. So they begin to kind of bust out some first century sign language. And I don't even know what that looks like to communicate. Your wife's lost her mind. She wants to name the child John. Your name's Zechariah. Can you work this out? But there's some kind of urgency that they're communicating to him. There's some kind of urgency. They want him to step in and set his wife straight. So Zechariah, he hasn't talked in a long time. And so he's familiar with this. He is accustomed to the disorientation of being brought into these conversations with no, no ability to rightly articulate using his voice. So he just probably just holds up a hand, points to this. They bring him over the wooden tablet, a piece of wood with uh, wax on it. Zechariah is doing this number. He gets out his famous scrolling tool. He, a little flourish. I mean, like, the guy hasn't spoken in a number of months, and so this is his moment to have people finally get quiet, and they're listening to see what's going to happen. Room's dead quiet. He's got a build for effect, y'all. John's a super short name, so he really has to take his time. So he scrolls out. Now, I want you to remember this. When they came and they presumed that they would call him Zechariah, what Elizabeth said was, his name shall be John. This is what we are going to call him. But when Zechariah gives an is given an opportunity, what he writes and how he responds is so incredibly instructive. He says, his name is John. Now, from the moment Zechariah met the angel in the temple... He's known in his heart that this child's name is John. So prior to conception, prior to birth, in Zechariah's heart and in reality, this child only ever had one name, and that is a display of God is gracious. Over and over again in his heart the last months, God is gracious. When the child is born, he looks there at the child, God is gracious. Everybody hears this and they recognize what fantastic event has taken place here. Zechariah has no ability in the middle of this engagement to speak to Elizabeth. Elizabeth has no ability to send uh, hand signals over the crowd to him. And so what is the result of this? It says they all wonder. Now at this moment of wondering, what happens is something fantastic. Zechariah's mouth is opened and he begins to declare now, he's had this whole time to sit and think and, and ponder and, and, and wonder, what will I say when finally my mouth is open? And what we read here in the text is when his mouth was open, when his tongue was loose, he started blessing and praising God, and he wouldn't quit. He started blessing and praising God, and he wouldn't quit. 
For 10 months, for nine full months, this family has known nothing but a quiet Zechariah. And finally, in this moment, when he's able to speak, what he does is fill the silence with a praise and worship of God. And when his neighbors hear this, they take special note of it. So his neighbors hear this, and, and because he's not a person who's filled up all the silence with speech, because he's a person who wasn't able to utter speech for this time, when he begins to speak, his neighbors lean in, and it leads them in the worship of God. It tells us they all feared, and what they did was they went everywhere they could possibly think of, and they began to tell people all the great things they'd experienced there. Verse 65, it says, all these things were talked about throughout the hill country, and they all treasured them, they laid them up in their hearts. And they begin to ask a seminal question, a single question, and it was not who is he going to be, but what is this child? They recognized the hand of God upon John's life, and they began to ask the question of what is he going to do? What is he going to be? Because they recognized the importance of those things which had transpired. Now what we see in 67 is that Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. We're told in the prophecy previously that John from the moment that he was in his mother's womb would have the Holy Spirit. When Elizabeth encounters Mary, she's filled with the Holy Spirit. And what we see now is John, is, or, or Zechariah rather, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he prophesies. And his prophecies really hit on a few different lines. The first section of his prophecy in 68 through 73 is a declaration of God in his action in history and his action in the future. In verse 74 and 75, what we see in this is what their response should be to God's action. In verse 76 and 77, he looks at the child and he speaks a word directly to the child. And then in 78 and 79, what we see is a word that speaks to God's character. Let's look at 67 through 73 and this, this praise of God. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does he say? He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. Zechariah is communicating some, some rather amazing things to them. You see, there, there has been this desire for the Messiah to come. But along with the desire, there has been this understanding that is God slow to fulfill this promise? Has he moved on to something else? Has he somehow altered his purpose in this? And what Zechariah begins to communicate to them is going all the way back to Abraham. Do you notice how he ends there? The covenant of Abraham, which he promised us, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a people. This idea that God's promise is not null and void. 
He says in verse 68 that he has visited, he has redeemed his people. This is a word that God spoke to his people through Moses and through Aaron before they go into the Exodus. This idea that he has visited his people, that he's getting ready to release them, that he's getting ready to send them into a promised land. And the word we hear in this is that God is preparing to do this again, not physically removing Roman rule, but spiritually removing the oppression of sin and death. Removing from us the the recognition that I desire joy, I desire peace, I desire love, but the world around me seems bent on removing the reality of the experience of these things from my life. And what we read is that God, who is great, he has visited, he has set free his people, and Zechariah is able to describe and look at a future reality as if it already happened. And so when we find ourselves in the middle of the difficulties of life, strain in our marital relationships, strain in our families, strain in our work, we come back into this promise that says that Zechariah, at this moment in 4 BC, when he was able to speak of the reality of the redemption of God's people through Jesus Christ, was able to describe it in such a way as to say, even though it hasn't happened yet, it is sure and done. The plan and purposes of God from eternity past are sure and accomplished. He has visited and redeemed. He has raised up a horn of salvation. He has declared victory in the house of David, his servant. Zechariah is is declaring, he said, listen, in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 16, God gave a promise to David that his line would never come to an end, that he would never lack for a man to sit upon the throne, and he is realizing that through the one who would come, through Jesus. He's visited, he's redeemed, he sent his redeemer and the man of Jesus. He is bringing salvation in his blood. As he spoke this by the mouth of his prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. How desperately do we find ourselves in the middle of these things wanting to have an experience of God's mercy? We get caught up in the headlines, we get caught up in the difficulties, and and what that invites us into in our flesh is thinking, what can I do to change the situation? What can I do to change my experience? What can I do to delight in these things? What can I do to make things easier? But what we read in this prophecy from Zechariah is not a God who says, I'm going to make things easier, I'm going to make things immediately better, but to hear a God write and say, things will be changed for all time. And God having this extension of his mercy to us. Mercy is something that is in far too short supply for us and far too short-lived. We experience mercy sporadically. We experience mercy applied to our lives temporarily. But what we read in this is there is a God in heaven who extends to his people mercy that knows no end. He brings to our hearts peace with no violation. And he extends to us an invitation to step and walk and have an experience of him and an experience of his joy. And it goes all the way back to the beginning. It has always been the plan and purpose of God. So Zechariah gives what should be our experience, what should be their experience. He says that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. And that we might do this in holiness, righteousness before him all our days. All our days. 
Zechariah gives an indication that the future enjoyment for the Christian, for those who come to know Jesus Christ in a saving way, is that we will be gathered before the throne with men and women from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, and that in that place, at that time, we will enter into unending praise. So there's something that should happen to us in the middle of when we are singing songs. It should be this longing for this song never to end, but, but met with this sadness that surely tells us certainly it will. Certainly it will. There should be this sweetness when Christians gather together and we focus on the risen Christ that says to us, we don't want this experience of fellowship to end, but this sadness that arrests us in the midst of this temporary joy in this place that tells us certainly it will. And what happens when this joy runs into the tension of this sadness? It calls us for a longing that this world, this place, this time cannot satisfy and in that longing we look not back to the first advent but we long for the second and say Jesus come even now in the here and the now in the difficulty of the already and the not yet we find ourselves living out this calling of serving him in love that's what it is to serve him without fear So Zechariah is calling the people to a deeper response and a deeper experience of God. Now this is an amazing thing for a man to declare. He has an eight-day-old son. He's lived his whole life with no children. He's seen siblings raise children. He's seen people in his church raise children, people in his community. He had long since given up on the hope of having a child. So what we see next is the tenderness of a dad. A dad who takes up his eight-day-old son. And the prophecy that he speaks over him, it's costly. It's difficult. And there's this, this decided element of sacrifice that he freely steps into. That should lead us to sadness. He looks down and he says, and you child. You will be called prophet of the most high God. Back in chapter 1 and verse 32, the angel said to Mary that his name will be Jesus and he will be son of the most high God. So we see Luke connecting these things. John the Baptist is going to work in a preparatory way. He is going to be a servant of Jesus. He says, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 40 in verse 3. 700 years prior. Fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi 3.1. 300 years before. His ministry is going to be preparatory. He's going to engage in giving people the knowledge of salvation and to his people for the forgiveness of their sins. And when John the Baptist steps on the scene in his ministry in Luke 3.3, this is what we read. He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance. For what? For the forgiveness of sins. And then Luke quotes that Isaiah passage. He's a dad holding his son eight days old. He knows that all of time has been bent 
has been superintended, has been purposed, has been meant for this moment, that he would be a dad holding his son, speaking this word of prophecy. You are the purpose and the plan of God. You, son, are going to prepare the way for the salvation of humanity. You, son, are going to set up and be the forerunner of the Messiah. There's excitement in him, no doubt. This is what his people have waited on. This is what they waited on through the Babylonian exile. This is what they've waited on for the last 60 years of Roman rule. This is what they wanted to experience. But let's not skip over this element of sadness. That even as he holds his son in his heart, he knows this boy is not mine. That this boy is the Lord's. He is for the Lord's purpose and he is for the Lord's plan. And lest I surrender him up, I cannot be found faithful to God. And you shall. We meet the sadness that God allows to be introduced into Zechariah's heart with the depiction of God's character here in 78. Look at what he says. He says, because of the tender mercy of our God, All of these things have taken place so that God might have an opportunity to display his tenderness towards humanity. The tenderness and the mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. You give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the ways of peace. What we see here is the fulfillment of Malachi 4 and 2. This idea that God is going to to bring sunrise to his people, that he is going to alleviate their sorrow, that he's going to lead them from darkness into light. And that John the Baptist will play the role of being a forerunner to Jesus. This idea of the sunrise, look at what John writes in John 1, 4, and 5. Speaking of Jesus, it says, In him was life. And life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John the Baptist is this man that typically when we think about him, we think about him as a grown man who lives in the wilderness, and he's got the camel hair and the honey and the locusts. And he's a good guy to know, but not somebody we want to have over for dinner. But I want us to think for a moment of the necessity of John's birth and the invitation for what that birth means. See, if you're here in this place today and you've never responded to the gospel, you've never responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives us the indication that tells us that we have sinned and fallen short of God's righteousness and his holiness. But the freedom and release from that sin ultimately comes through the sacrificial death of Jesus who came and lived a perfectly sinless life. And he took upon himself the penalty and the punishment for your sin upon a cross. And then in dying, God raised him up again so that he might take on the penalty, the punishment, and then overcome sin and death for you. I think we hear that. Even culturally, if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you've heard that, but you've never really understood the significance of it. 
I want you to understand something. That wasn't the only thing God put in motion to accomplish the possibility today for your salvation. God also purposed before the foundation of the world that John the Baptist would be born. That Zechariah and Elizabeth would throughout their life experience the scorn, the reproach, the difficulty of not having a child. That Zechariah would be in the temple on that day that the angel would come forth to him, that he would declare to him that you would have a son, that he would in some sense be found to be disobedient. That Elizabeth would have an opportunity to display her faithfulness before this crowd and that Zechariah as a dad would have an opportunity before the foundation of the world to hold his eight-day-year-old son and say, you, son, will be the prophet of the Most High. And today, if you do not know Jesus, all of this is purposed and planned so that you might come and receive salvation. God's plan and purposes always find their end in humanity's redemption. And in re- humanity's redemption is a personal invitation to you to come to know him. John the Baptist is the forerunner. Jesus is the one who stands and offers you redemption, salvation in his name. Listen, if you're a Christian in this place, you know what it is to hear the Bible talk about joy. And to think to yourself, why don't I have more joy? Perhaps it's because I'm, I'm not faithful enough. Perhaps it's because I don't go to church enough. Perhaps it's because I needed to add a zero to my commitment card. Perhaps it's because any number of different things. I'm going to tell you that all of these things, ultimately, if you seek to find joy through the doing of things, you will not find more joy. What you will find is more frustration. What you will find is more disappointment. Because we recognize, Christian, that true joy only comes when we have a repeated experience of the joy giver. Because the joy that we receive through Christ is a joy that can never be lost. It's a joy that can never be diminished. And it's an invitation to step into the joy and the reality that we will receive at his second coming. And that's joy unending. It's not the doing of things, it's returning to Jesus, finding our hearts in him again, and choosing to allow the delight of God in the person of Jesus to be found in your life. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. God, I want to pray for those who this morning are struggling with their experience of joy. God, I pray that they would look to the second coming of Jesus and the joy to be experienced in his second advent. God, that you would sustain them by the power of your spirit at work in this fellowship, that we would be an encouragement to one another. The difficulties of this life as powerful as they are, would only call us back to worship you all the more. And we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to your son Jesus. 
God, that today would be the day that they begin to step into forgiveness, to know your son Jesus, and to receive the deposit of the joy that they could never know outside of the sacrifice of your son. God, we submit these things to you. We ask that you continue to lead us in worship of you as we give ourselves to worshiping you through song. In Christ's name we pray, amen.